Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. We are here with part two of Giangle Meshi. The trial that would create change in Canada. Giangle Meshi, the media celebrity. He's a musician, journalist, author, and broadcaster that's been in the business for 30 years. Then, he's accused of sexual assault and choking to overcome resistance. Three women attended trial as witnesses to the charges. It all will boil down to the credibility of the witnesses and their accounts of what transpired before, during, and even after the attacks. We will explore more of the details of the case and examine the verdict today. So please, don't leave me. It was determined that Justice William Horkins would reside over Jean's trial. He was well regarded in the legal community as thoughtful, and many lawyers refer to him as fair. He's known as a golf nut and a Toronto Maple Leafs fan that enjoys cycling. He made headlines in 2013 when in Canada he ruled that an instance of police carding in Toronto was unconstitutional. He generally was viewed as a balanced guy with good judgment by lawyers and his peers in the justice community. The players involved in the Gomeshi trial on both sides felt confidence in his appointment. February 1st of 2016 is the first day of the Gomeshi trial and the public is all ears. Celebrity Gian Gomeshi arrives with his counsel. No cameras are permitted in the Canadian courts so there was a lineup just to get into the courtroom. Jean is there, responding to the five charges, four of sexual assault and one of overcoming resistance by choking. In Canada, a criminal assault is the intentional application of force without that person's consent. A sexual assault is committed in the sexual circumstances in a way that the sexual integrity of the victim is violated. The defining of the assault being sexual is objective. It needs to answer to the nature of the contact. Would it be reasonable to the person in their view of the situation and circumstances that the contact is indeed sexual? Sexual assault in the criminal code involves many types of allegations, including everything from uninvited sexual touching to brutal rape. Each allegation of the complainants in the Jean Gomeshi case falls within the broad definition because every complaint of violence occurred in an intimate situation. In Lucy de Coter's charge of choking with intent, it was to be proven that Jean attempted to choke her with the intent of committing an offense, such as a sexual assault. Justice Horkins refers to the publicity around the Gomeshi case as the Gomeshi scandal and clearly states that each charge presented is based entirely on the evidence of the complainant. This becomes significant 
because the judgment will depend entirely on the credibility of the complainants as a witness. Linda Redgrave was the first witness to testify in the case. She was the server working at the CBC Christmas party. She gave her testimony as we covered in part one, telling of meeting Gomeshi at the later part of December in 2002 and the early part of January 2003. She detailed that he took her in his Disney car and was flirtatious and playful, but that later yanked her hair multiple times and punched her and pulled her to her knees. Shortly after that, he called her a cab and she left feeling like she'd been discarded like trash. Here is where the issues arise. Defense lawyer Marie Heinen is very thorough and prepared in an evolving set of facts that is revealed in cross-examination. Prior to speaking with the police, Linda gave three interviews with the media about her allegations, describing that the first assault happened out of the blue, not as it having occurred during a kissing session. Her police statement was reminiscent of her interviews for the exception of near the end of her statement where she had the hair pulling and kissing intertwined. Then, as a witness, she had developed her account to the point that the sensuous kissing and hair pulling were simultaneous, creating what the judge saw suspiciously as a common assault claim that turned into a sexual assault claim. After she was asked about changing the details, she claimed that she wasn't certain of the sequencing of the events, so she didn't put them in while doing media interviews. Additionally, the day following her police interviews, she sent a follow-up email explaining that she clearly recalled that she had been wearing a clip-on hair extension when Gomeshi pulled her hair in a car. Under cross-examination, she reversed her clear memory, and now was claiming certainty that she was not wearing the hair extension during the incident. She had been in frequent contact with authorities using email and telephone communication and met with the Crown Council in person, never once correcting the misinformation that she gave police. To add to the concern with her account was the fact that her reversals on the point of her hair extensions being pulled and her claim that she had disclosed this change in memory when in fact, upon cross-examination, she conceded that that was untrue. The day after her interview with police, she emailed their offices to say that she was beginning to remember that during the incident in the vehicle, Mr. Gomeshi had smashed her head into the window. Again, previous accounts that she gave to the media and police included no mention of her head being smashed into a window at all. Under cross-examination again, she reverted her claim and said her head was resting against the window. This created yet another new version of the events. When she was pressed to explain these changing accounts, she said that her police interview was simply throwing thoughts at investigators. She denied showing in a video statement that her hair was pulled towards the seat of the car and not towards a window. And she was adamant, even when shown video evidence of her showing detectives her hair was pulled, claiming that she was high on nerves. Her recall about the assault at Gomeshi's home 
had also changed substantially. She said in an interview with the Toronto Star that she had been pulled down to the floor and then assaulted. When she appeared on CBC Radio, she claimed that she was thrown down to the ground, and then later, she told police that the events were blurry and she didn't know how she ended up on the ground. Her clarifications in court were that being thrown and being pulled are the same thing. Another of her clear memories was of the love bug, or the Disney car. It was the reason that she felt safe with Xi'an and determined that he was a nice person. However, in court it was proven that Mr. Gomeshi did in fact own a Volkswagen Beetle, but not until seven months after the incident occurred. This error was considered significant. It was her reason for assessing her comfort level with Gomeshi. Her description of the vehicle was an important feature in her recollections, and yet the memory is simply wrong. This false memory fell hard against her credibility as a witness. Linda was firm that following the second incident, she chose never to have any further contact with Mr. Gomeshi. She testified that every time she heard Mr. Gomeshi on TV or on the radio, she had to turn it off. The sound of Mr. Gomeshi's voice and the sight of his face made her relive the trauma of the assault. Linda's testimony was in contrast to the proven facts of the case. She continued to send Gomeshi flirtatious emails up to a year later, referring to him as a playboy and makes reference to having a good time seeing him again. She sends him a video that she made with updated contact information, including a phone number and email address. There's no evidence that he ever did respond, but the issue is this is not a message that she simply could have forgotten. Her conduct is inconsistent with her claim that even the thought of Gomeshi was traumatizing. Six months later, Linda sent another email to Mr. Gomeshi. In it, she said, Hi, Jian, I've been watching you. Referring to his TV show, I hope all is well. Attached is a picture of her, reclined on a sandy beach wearing a red string bikini. She did not disclose this to police or the Crown, and it had a very negative impact on her credibility. Only after she was confronted in cross-examination with the emails and attachment did she suddenly remember, not just attempting to contact Mr. Gomeshi, but also that it was part of a plan. She claimed that her emails were intended as bait to draw him out and have him contact her. This is in complete opposition to her claim that she wanted nothing to do with him and became traumatized at the thought of him. Her factual inconsistencies and her odd behavior left the judge greatly skeptical, even though he noted that there's no black and white expectation of how an abused person should behave. Linda's evidence was considered rational and balanced, yet under questioning, the value of her evidence suffered irreparable damage. There were too many inconsistencies revealed, and her conduct was described as incongruous and deceptive. 
Linda was exposed as a witness willing to withhold relevant information from the police, from the Crown, and from the court. She deliberately breached her oath to tell the truth, and her value as a reliable witness was diminished. Actress and naval captain Lucy de Cotier was the second witness in the Jean Gomeshi trial and the most publicly recognized face. Canadians were shocked to hear of her accusations against Gomeshi and they were disgusted. Her claims of him in the media hitting her in the face with an open hand and then later choking her until she couldn't get any air was terrifying. Yet, Lucy's credibility as a witness was also vigorously challenged in cross-examination, and it revealed serious problems with her evidence as well. Just prior to Lucy appearing in court to deliver witness testimony, she requested a meeting with the Crown and police and revealed a significant amount of new information. Despite having the assistance of her own counsel and having open communication with the investigating officers months leading up to trial, her claim was that her late disclosure was a spontaneous decision. She indicated she was not aware that Linda had been confronted about having had post-assault contact with Gomeshi. She came forward insisting that she did not previously understand the importance of this type of information until the day before she appeared in court. Lucy's cross-examination did not go much better than Linda's had the day previous. She confirmed on the stand that she did not mention in her sworn police interview or in any of her 19 media interviews that Gomeshi had attempted to kiss her during their walk to his home, that they kissed on the couch after the assault, and that they kissed goodnight when she left his home that evening. She did not include this information in any way before the trial. She was asked directly by Detective Ansari in her police interview about what happened during the time between the alleged assault and her departure from his home, and she responded that nothing stuck in her memory. Her attempt to explain this inconsistency was that she did not think that kissing with Gomeshi after the assault was very consequential. It was difficult for the judge to comprehend that someone who was choked as a part of a sexual assault would consider kissing with an attacker both before and after the assault it was not worth mentioning when reporting the matter to the police. He agreed that one may be reluctant to mention it, but it was suspicious of her for claiming that it wasn't relevant. Lucy was clear on minute details of their date, what Mr. Gomeshi ordered at the restaurant, how he organized his shirts, that the temperature of his house was perfect, and that fresh flowers were on the table. All of this was memorable and remarkable. Yet, she claimed to have left out the kissing and the cuddling because she thought bravery and succinctness were important. It didn't appear that the judge was going to accept this as a credible explanation rather than an overt attempt at omission. Lucy repeatedly stated that Gomeshi's suggestion about lying down together and listening to music was creepy cheesy or otherwise unappealing. It made her uncomfortable. However, five days later, when she penned him a love letter, she wrote, what on earth could be better than lying with you? 
listening to music, and having peace. Lucy Decotier was clear in her statement to police under oath that the exact events at Gian Gomeshi's house were all jumbled. She claimed there was kissing at a certain point but could not say if it was before the choking or after. When she spoke to the Toronto Store reporter only days before that interview, she said she was choked and then slapped. Once Lucy was on the witness stand, she testified specifically that she was pushed up against the wall, slapped twice, a moment passed, and then again she was slapped with an open hand. On the stand, she agreed that this was her third version of events to date. Recalling these details was not a concern for the judge presiding on the trial. It happened over 10 years ago and was a traumatic experience. The shifting of facts with each telling of events and presenting as completely certain each time, appearing sincere and accurate, yet giving differing versions of the same event, suggested a degree of carelessness with the truth, and it diminished her reliability. Lucy swore to the police that after the alleged assault in 2003, she only saw Jean Gomeshi in passing. She was polite to him, but only because she didn't want to jeopardize her future professional prospects. She didn't pursue any kind of relationship with him. Lucy was asked directly by the police interviewers to tell them everything about her relationship with Mr. Gomeshi before and after the alleged assault. To some, it became clear at trial that Lucy had deliberately chosen not to be honest with the police. Her statement to police was what initiated the proceedings to begin with. Her statement was subject to a formal caution concerning the potential criminal consequences of making a false statement. She was under oath to tell the whole truth, not a selective version of the truth. And despite that formal caution, she continued to suppress relevant and material information. It reflected badly on her reliability and credibility as a witness. The judge also had discovered that the evening of the second day of trial, and just before Lucy would testify, that her lawyer approached the Crown Council with a question. If there was more to the post-assault relationship between Mr. Cotier and Mr. Gomeshi than what had already been disclosed, would the Crown be interested in knowing about it? Lucy was asked to make further formal sworn police statements, and then it was disclosed for the defense. For the first time, the fact that Lucy had sent flowers to Jean days after the choking was disclosed. She said that she and Jean had spent a considerable amount of time together in Banff in 2004. She also acknowledged that there were additional emails between them. All of this was deliberately withheld up until the night before she testified. The judge was not convinced that Lucy could have sincerely thought that all of this was inconsequential and of no interest to the prosecution. She may have been afraid or embarrassed to disclose this information, but it was not believable that she decided not to disclose it because she didn't think it was relevant. It didn't help that when given the last-minute opportunity to make a full disclosure, she failed to do so. She tried to explain to the court that she continued socializing with Xi'an after the choking incident 
and over the rest of the 2003 Canada Day weekend because she wanted to normalize the situation and flatten the negative and not to make him feel bad. So she stuck with her plans and continued to see him over the weekend. She testified that she kept her distance and did not do anything intimate with him. When flatly asked if she would like a moment to review her thoughts and be clear that she was offering a truthful statement under oath, she did not back down. Then, when she was confronted with a photograph of herself cuddling affectionately in the park with Xi'an, the very next day, Lucy was not looking good. But she would be back another day to be able to secure her credibility. More questions were on the way, and she had made an extra disclosure of any remaining details so she wouldn't get tangled up in any of the tiny details that could pop up and create doubt about her reliability. Hopefully. Miss de Cotier's new disclosure included for the first time information about her contact with Mr. Gomeshi at the 2004 Banff Festival, including a karaoke duet of Hit Me Baby One More Time. She attempted to explain the last-minute timing of this disclosure as being the first chance that she felt she had to tell anyone. The judge found this explanation unconvincing, coming from a witness who'd been interviewed dozens of times prior to trial. She'd established a continual flow of email correspondence with the investigating officers. She had her own lawyer involved in the case for over a year and a half leading up to trial. If she truly intended to provide this information, she had ample means to do so. After Lucy's meeting with Gomeshi at the 2004 Banff Festival, she sent Xian a photograph of their performing karaoke. The caption on the photo said, Proof that you can't live without me. She was confronted with this on the stand and asked about the playful caption. She claimed it was all part of an effort to make Gomeshi less of an assaulter and more of a friend. The explanation worked against Lucy when further details were revealed during a continued cross-examination. Before going to Banff, Lucy contacted Jean and she told him that she wanted to play with him when they saw each other again in Banff. She suggested that maybe they have a chance encounter in the broom closet. The response from Mr. Gomeshi appeared almost like a brush-off. He responded, I'd love to hang out, but can't promise much. Lucy emailed him again, saying that she would beat the crap out of him if they didn't get together in Banff, adding that she would like to tap him on the shoulder for breakfast. She was indeed pursuing Jian with an expectation that they would spend more time together. A natural assumption might be that what was actually preventing Lucy from sharing all of this undisclosed information was the fear that to some this post-event socializing would reflect badly on her claims that this man had in fact assaulted her. Had she feared that this sort of thinking would undermine her credibility, that concern might have been reasonable. 
However, she offered an entirely different explanation for suppressing the information. She said that her plan was to tell these things in trial, and she'd always planned to reveal these tidbits, but felt trial was the first place to do so. Lucy had literally dozens of pretrial opportunities to provide the full picture to the authorities. The judge suspected the truth was that she thought she might get away with not mentioning it. Another point in the new disclosure statement was the information that Lucy sent flowers to Gian Gomeshi for being such a good host, within days of when she said she was choked. The judge acknowledged that this might be part of her effort, as she had said, to normalize the situation. However, whether or not this behavior should be considered unusual or not, it was very clearly relevant, and it was material information at a trial where you were accusing someone of sexually assaulting you. The deliberate withholding of the information reflected very poorly on Lucy. The judge felt that she was attempting to mislead the court about her ongoing relationship with Gomeshi because it was only during her questioning in court that her interest in continuing to see him was expressed honestly. She had testified that after the Canada Day long weekend, she was certain she was not interested in continuing a relationship with Jian. The wording was very specific. She guaranteed under oath that she had no romantic feelings for him. It was concerning to the judge that after making a late disclosure and stating her contact after the attack was only attempts to flatten out the negative and any later contact was indifferent and not playful as they had been previously. But again, that turned out not to be true. In an email sent just two weeks later, on July 17, 2003, Lucy told Jean that he was magic. And on July 25th, three weeks after the alleged assault, she wrote to Gomeshi that she was, quote unquote, really glad to know you. On April 6th of 2004, she wrote an email suggesting to help Jean with an itch that you need scratching. And on October 19th of 2005, she sent to him what she described as a ridiculous sexualized photo of herself with the neck of a beer bottle in her mouth simulating an act of fellatio. And as recently as September 8th, 2010, she had posted a Facebook message fondly recalling the 2003 Canada Day weekend the weekend that the sexual assault took place. In fact, on July 5th, 2003, the next day after she was choked by Jean, she sent him a message. It read, Getting to know you is literally changing my mind in a good way. You challenge me and point to stuff that's not been pulled out in a very long time. I can tell you about that sometime and everything about our friendship so far will make sense. You kicked my ass last night, and that makes me want to fuck your brains out tonight. The judge read that as no trace of animosity, regret, or offense taken. And after Lucy arrived back home in Halifax, she sent a handwritten letter that the court classified as a love letter. She expressed her regret that she'd not spent the night 
The courtroom was electric when it was revealed that although Jean had choked Lucy less than a week before she wrote the letter, the letter concludes, I love your hands. Lucy explained the letter as an attempt to normalize the relationship. The court did agree that they do have to guard against assuming odd reactions from a complainant immediately means they're fabricating their claims. The issue arose from the fact that Lucy's behavior and her own written expressions were in direct opposition to her claims in pretrial statements, statements that she had made to the police and even to the media. The court viewed this as hiding evidence and felt it was a manipulative course of conduct. Concerns about her reliability were mounting, and the judge had another concern. As a victim of abuse, it seemed natural that Lucy would embrace and cultivate her role as an advocate for victims of sexual violence. But in view of her misleading statements and omissions, the court felt that her advocate status may have explained why Lucy didn't feel comfortable revealing some of her questionable conduct. Justice Horkins was clear that he didn't have sufficient evidence to conclude this was in fact a reason for suppressing evidence. But in light of the amount of compromising information that she willingly and willfully attempted to suppress, he felt it couldn't be ignored as a live question. Judge Horkins also felt that some of Lucy's demonstrated hostility was of concern. During trial, it was shown that on December 9th, 2014, she told another witness that she was excited for the trial because it was going to be, quote, theater at its best. She also claimed, dude, with my background, I literally feel like I was prepped to take this on. And also claiming, this trial does not freak me out. I invite media shit. Considering she's an actress by trade, it did not fare well for Lucy to appear preparing to put on theater in a courtroom. It was also noted during trial that Lucy had engaged the services of a publicist for her involvement in the case, and that she had given 19 media interviews garnering massive attention. She was said to have been very excited when Mia Farrow tweeted her support online and joined what she called the team. And she analogized her role in the case as a spokesperson, not unlike David Beckham's role with Armani, furthering the court's concern for her possible motivation to suppress or omit evidence in her testimony. Her flirtatious correspondence of 2003 and 4 were in contrast to her strong animosity that was preserved in emails and photographs that she claimed she had forgotten about. In communication with another complainant, she said she wanted to see that Mr. Gomeshi was fucking decimated. And she stated, the guy's a shit show, it's time to flush. And then very bluntly, just fuck Gomeshi. The judge had concerns with the reliability of Lucy's testimony and not her undetermined motivations. It's difficult to trust a witness 
who engages in selective withholding of relevant information. Sarah Dunsworth, a close friend of Lucy's and a co-star on her television show, gave a sworn statement in November of 2015. Shortly before her interview, Lucy told her friend that she'd already advised the police and that she had told Sarah ages ago about the choking incident. And she was quoted as saying, it makes me look like I'm not a copycat. Sarah's response was, corroborate, haha, <laughs> yeah, no problem. In her statement, she's clear that about 10 years ago, Lucy had spoken to her about a choking incident that occurred while she was on a date with Xi'an. Lucy had wondered if her friend agreed that it was weird. The judge admitted the evidence at trial because he felt that it may be implied later that Lucy's evidence was completely fabricated in the year of 2014. However, during trial, Xi'an's defense attorney didn't make any allegations that Lucy's account was a recent fabrication. So Sarah's supporting claim fell under a rule against the admissibility of self-corroboration. Just because Lucy spoke of the event 10 years previously doesn't make it any more likely to be truthful or fabricated. So Lucy's supporting witness was really no help to either side. The final and third witness referred to in the trial notes and media is SD. This is the woman who met with Gomeshi while she was a dancer in a production taking place in a public park. She testified that she was assaulted in mid-July of 2005. While making out on a secluded park bench, Jian squeezed her neck forcefully enough to cause discomfort and to interfere with her ability to breathe. She related to the police that after her attack, they socialized two or three more times in the days and weeks following, and then had no further relationship. On the witness stand, she was struggling to give a clear account and gave the reasoning that she was still trying to figure it out. The judge agreed that 10 years after the fact, it would be expected that some details would be hard to recall. However, for such a serious allegation, the courts would expect a certain level of clarity within reason. The standard of proof in a criminal case requires sufficient clarity in the evidence to allow a confident acceptance of the essential facts. The issue for Judge Horkins was this testimony in particular. He had his hand, it was sort of, it was sort of his hands were on my shoulders, kind of on my arms here, and then it was, and then I felt his teeth and then his hands around my neck. It was rough, but yeah, it was rough. In response to the witness's testimony, the judge felt that there was a concern of possible collusion between the witnesses. A few issues concerned Horkins. Firstly, the last witness came forward with her claims because she saw that the other women were coming forward and she had seen media reports and spoke to other parties for about six weeks after the story hit the press. She testified early on that she and Lucy had never discussed the details of her attack before she attended a police interview. In cross-examination, she admitted that she in fact had told Lucy about the details. Considering her testimony was admittedly imprecise, 
the judge was concerned that this outside influence may have imported some of her recollection of experience. Another concern was what the judge called extreme dedication to bring Gianco Meshi down. In one year, Lucy and a third victim known as SD had exchanged approximately 5,000 messages. The judge agreed that because the ladies easily have legitimate feelings of abuse, that they would share this concern between each other. But his concern came from statements in their communication. Terms like being a team and that the goal was to bring down Gomeshi. The inference was also that they had a strong team bond. They went into details about witnesses, court dates, and meetings that they had with the prosecution. Their partnership was referred to as Insta Sisters, and they shared a publicist to deal with the matters in the media. In fact, during the early stages of the case, the ladies shared the same lawyer. They spoke of building a Jenga tower against Jian and used crude vernacular like sink the prick because he's a fucking piece of shit. Witness SD had also met with the Crown five times prior to her appearance, and she was reminded to disclose everything before trial. Then, on the eve of appearing on the stand, she disclosed last minute that she'd been involved in sexual activity with Xi'an on a date after the alleged assault in the park. In her first interviews, she was clear that she kept her distance and was fearful of Xi'an. He made her feel unsafe. She did acknowledge that she went out with Gimashi a couple of times after the assault, but she was clear to point out that it was always in public. Only dinner dates in public places. Unfortunately, at trial, she agreed that she had taken him back to her home after one dinner date and in her words, messed around and gave him a hand job. The judge saw this as a deliberate lie and stated that suppressing this information undermines the court's confidence. She directly lied under oath. Her suggestion that she didn't disclose the intimate contact because she wasn't specifically asked about post-assault sexual activity and that she didn't consider a hand job to qualify as sex was in conflict with her claim that she left out things because they didn't fit a pattern. Over six months after the assault on February 25th, 2004, she sent Jian an email where she asked, still wanna have that drink sometime? The judge was skeptical of their claim that she had heard on the radio that emails were being presented in court to the other two witnesses. Then she decided to disclose the whole truth. According to the defense, she was playing chicken with the justice system. She wasn't honest about how closely she was following the proceedings, and she knew that she was about to run right into her own critical omissions being aired. Judge Horkins mocked her excuse that this was her first kick at the can and that she didn't know how to navigate the proceedings. The judge stated, it's quite simple. Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In the conclusions of Judge Horkin's verdict, he outlined that each complainant's case was unique, but some things were in concert. Each had involvement in the arts and entertainment world that led to their meeting with Xi'an. 
each had accused him of a certain act of violence in a brief dating relationship and all ending badly. Each chose not to file a complaint until years after the fact, and each came forward around the same period of 2014 in the wake of extensive publicity. They all chose to come forward to the media before they gave sworn statements to authorities. And they had all referred to Gomeshi's celebrity and declared that they were a fan of his work. They had also made complaints of a degree of violence occurring in the course of intimacy, including yanking hair, punching, choking, and slaps to the face. And finally, each complainant acknowledged some small amount of amicable contact with the accused after the fact. As witnesses, the judge stated that the complainants were less than forthcoming and honest with the media, the police, and finally, even on the witness stand. He went on to describe that the courts have to be very cautious assessing evidence of sexual assault and abuse because they fall almost exclusively on the reliability and credibility of the accuser. He felt that it was out of harmony with their accusations that they would engage in conduct with Jean after the fact and then misrepresent themselves in court. Once a witness has been shown to be deceptive in court, Judge Horkins claimed, that witness can no longer expect the court to consider them a trusted source of truth. The serious deficiencies in their evidence left the court with reasonable doubt about their claims. The judge declared he had no hesitation, concluding the quality of the evidence is incapable of displaying the presumption of innocence. Mr. Gomeshi was found not guilty on all charges, and they were noted as dismissed on March 24th. 2016. Here's the disconnect. It was Jesse Brown's podcast Canada Land in October of 2014 that triggered Gomeshi to believe he was about to see the Toronto Stars story come out. He hears that the host has a huge story for the star and it's worse than embarrassing for certain parties. So he's prompted to go to his CBC bosses in order to make a preemptive strike against the news breaking about his sexually abusive behavior. Before that happened, he wanted them to understand that all of his sexual contact with these anonymous sources was in fact consensual. When they saw evidence of one woman having been hurt, they fired him. However, Jesse Brown and Kevin Donovan of the Toronto Star had shelved their story because the star decided the proof was not there. Not enough evidence was there to support the claims. So, once those floodgates opened, the Toronto Star was free to publish the information that they had uncovered, prompting other women to come forward. And kaboom, police begin their investigation, and it leads to the arrest and charges against Gomeshi. things that he hoped would exonerate him in the eyes of the CBC, that they would stand by him against this podcaster who had clearly signaled that an expose was on the way. But here's the thing. I wasn't talking about Gian on that podcast. 
I was talking about another CBC personality, Terry Molesky, who Glenn Greenwald says sat on Snowden leaks about spying in Canada for months on end instead of reporting them. That was my monster story. The Jean story had been sitting on ice. The star wouldn't run it because my sources were all anonymous. Vice wouldn't run it for the same reason. It was not imminent. It was not going to drop. Here's why it did. Right after Jian got fired, I heard about it from a source and tweeted the news, and I suggested that I knew why he was fired, which I did. Well, he took that as another clear sign for me that I was about to unload everything I had on CanadaLandShow.com, which he thought I had previously promised on the show. And so he posted that Facebook confessional, warning his legions of fans about the smear job that was coming from this freelance writer guy and, you know, the jilted ex. And once he did that, once he went public, the star could too. Thanks for coming back and listening to the second part of the Giango Meshi story. But you know how sarcastic people will say there's three sides to every story? Well, here's the treat. There's going to be another episode on this case coming out very shortly. It'll illuminate some of the questions that are kind of there sitting like big holes in the story that don't totally make sense. So hopefully that will flesh out some things for you. Mm-hmm.